you are at church on what is the most significant weekend of the entire year for us as Christians. There would be no such thing as a Christian faith if it was not for what we celebrate, commemorate, and remember on this weekend. Uh, And whether you're in church this morning on Good Friday for the first time or for the hundredth time, our hope is that you will experience something of a turning point moment uh, in your relationship with God this morning. No matter what your experience or expectation has been uh, of this of this day, and we're going to do everything we can with trust and reliance in God to 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 help you receive this renewed perspective of of why this weekend matters so much, what the whole idea of Good Friday is and, and, and its relevance or significance for us today. And of course, we also hope that we'll all receive a new perspective uh, on this man that we are talking about, this man called Jesus Christ. I'm sure most of us sitting in this room will know one or two things about Easter weekend. If you were to walk out of here and get quizzed on what Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday is all about, I'm sure most of us would be able to tell that it's about something a little bit more than just, you know, a lacquer long weekend with Easter eggs, Right? I'm sure most of us will know that it's about something other than just that. So what do we know about Easter? Well, we know that this is the weekend where Christians all across the world gather to, like we said just now, remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is why Christianity is even a thing. Um, We also know, I'm sure, that around Easter time, just like Christmas time, there's some scriptures that will be read and shared and talked about in services like this. You know, perhaps we will read from the book of Romans, arguably which is the best or the most powerful exposition of the Christian faith found anywhere in Scripture. Romans 6, verses 8 to 11, for example, would be a great verse that we could read on a day like this. It would say, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. By the way, how amazing is that song, the the creed, I believe in God our Father, I believe, I love that. This is it, it's based on the Scripture. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Beautiful verse. It explains the whole message of what Easter is. I'm sure most of us, if we got quizzed on what the Easter weekend was about, would know that this time of year, this festival is called Passover. And I'm pretty sure that some of us will know where that term comes from. Quick show of hands, who knows where the term Passover comes from? Okay, couple, you guys get 5,000 points in heaven when you get there one day and a free cappuccino. <laughs> Joking. Um, the, 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 the idea of Passover comes from the book of Exodus, right? When the children of Israel were being led out, the Hebrew nation was being led out of captivity. God delivered them out from under the hand of Pharaoh. And on, after the 10 plagues, remember those 10 horrible plagues that happened? The last one being the death of the firstborn son in all of Egypt. Uh, God said to the children of Israel, would you slaughter a lamb, please, and take the blood of the lamb and paint it over the doorposts of your home? And when the angel of death would move through the streets of Egypt, he would pass over the homes that had the blood of the lamb covering them. Beautiful symbol, right, of what today is all about. We can see how the entire Old Testament is a picture pointing towards what Jesus fulfilled. Speaking of prophecies, you know, there's some like Isaiah 53, right? This is also a good, a good picture. This was the script for Good Friday written 700 years before it took place. That's what it says. He was despised, talking about Jesus, and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. And we're going to talk more a little bit about that just now. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. 
But we in turn, we regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. Famous Isaiah 53, 5. It's known as the healing covenant. One of the healing covenants in scripture. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. That's where communion comes from. It's, where, it's what it's based on. God is wonderful in his commitment to his word. Amen. That was written 700 years before Jesus did what we're celebrating this weekend. But what we may not all know about this Easter weekend is, you know why it's celebrated during April every year and why that day changes, in fact. Bit of interesting uh, geography. Who thought you would be coming to church and get a geography lesson this morning? But the, the, um, according to the Jewish festival calendar, the Passover always begins on the 15th day of the first Hebrew month of the year, Nisan. Or if you're from the Eastern Cape, Nisan. Uh, <laughs> Which is, which is now in spring, right? Uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, obviously, where the, it's, it's kind of where the first signs of life appear after, the, after this winter. And because the Hebrew months are pegged directly on the lunar calendar, not the solar calendar, the, the lunar calendar, the 15th day of the first month is always on a full moon. And so, you know, it's always going to be falling on this, on this date. And without going into too much detail around why the calendars were changed and all that, most Christian communities will then celebrate Easter uh, on the first Sunday after that first full moon, when the moon is highest and most visible in the sky. Anyone see that moon last night? How amazing was that? And I just think it's amazing that Easter is celebrated during the weekend on the pinnacle of the lunar calendar where the light is shining at its brightest against the backdrop of the darkness in the sky. Just look for God, he's not that hard to find, right? But knowledge aside, knowledge aside, all that information aside, I guess... The real issue, the real topic that I want us to focus on today is not you know, whether or not the crucifixion took place. We're not going to do a narrative or apologetic style uh, message on you know, if the crucifixion and resurrection really happened. There's, there's plenty enough secular accounts of this event to show that it was a real life historical moment that took place, apart from, of course, the Bible that, that, that proves itself. The, the, the real topic, the real issue that I want to focus on today is, is what is my response to the question of why the cross matters so much. Why does this matter? And, and, and what is my response to, to, to this question, this, this information that I have? What is my response to the significance of the cross for me right now in 2023? What am I going to do with this information? Why is it important? And I, I want to create for us an opportunity to respond in some way this morning to the message of what the cross of Jesus carries for us today, because it does matter. It matters a whole lot, in fact. Whether you're saved or not, there's some significance to this. And there's a lesser-known character, I suppose, in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus that I want to just zone in on for a few minutes this morning and, and use to describe this topic of, of the relevance of the cross as we unpack that idea today. This, this lesser-known character, this, this Roman character, He'd been around many crosses before, in fact. This was nothing new to him. He had seen many men take this journey to this place of crucifixion. In fact, he had presided over, he had governed over many crucifixions before. It was his job, you see. And this particular character who we're going to read about in just a moment was well acquainted with how this process worked. Because I'm not sure if you know this, but the crucifixion, the, the cross, was a tool used by the Roman Empire to show people its dominance over everyone. This was Caesar's mark, 
This is what he used. How many of us know that in, in those times, he was seen as a God? Caesar was worshipped as a God. That's how much power he had, according to the people of the world. And so this, this character knew this. He goes, this is the emblem of Rome's power and dominance over people. There was a familiarity to the cross for this man, if you want to call it that. He had built up a familiarity to what usually took place when someone was crucified. But unlike all the other times before, unlike there was something different about this man, Jesus. And when this character looks at Jesus, he says something so significant that we read about it 2,000 years later. It's written in three of the four Gospels. So what happened? What happened in that moment? What, what, what caused that conviction for this man to utter such a declaration that it resounds 2,000 years later in Scripture? And here's the thing. Here's why I want us to focus on this, on this guy's story and, and, and his perspective of the cross for a moment is maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've also Maybe you've also looked at the cross of Jesus before too. Maybe not only in church, maybe you've seen it around town, displayed in jewelry stores and up on the hilltops like the one that you saw coming into J Bay. And maybe you've gotten used to seeing the cross all around. Now there's kind of a familiarity that often builds up when one is surrounded by such a symbol for so long, isn't there? And just like the, this character that we're going to read about in the story, you've built up something of a familiarity with Good Friday and the message of the cross. And maybe that's the part that's been missing. Maybe that's the element that's been missing in your experience of Christianity. Maybe that's even limited you in some way from experiencing true purpose and true fulfillment in your life. Maybe, maybe this is the element that's kept you stuck in some way, unable to move forward in freedom to some extent. And this morning, my hope is that you will see and find in the story of Jesus' death as told through the eyes of a first-hand witness, the strength to let go of the familiarity with Friday and embrace the finality of Friday. That's my hope. That's what I'm going to do. I want to encourage us to let go of the familiarity and take hold of the finality of Friday. The title of my message this morning is The Centurion and the Cry on the Cross. The Centurion and the Cry on the Cross. So let's read the scripture together in Mark chapter 15 that details this account. And just listen very carefully to the detail, the words that are, that are recorded here. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's from 12 until three. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, give me a moment. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. I hope I did that okay. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, look, he's calling for Elijah, one of the prophets, to come and help him. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come take him down. Just pause there for a moment, guys. That sponge, by the way, I figured this out or discovered it in doing a bit of research. You know what that was used for? Very often when the Roman soldiers were in battle, that's what they used a sponge. That's what, that's what they would use to clean themselves. The humiliation of the cross, right? The humiliation of the cross. Christ did that for us. Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. And here's where it gets interesting. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice 
and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Anyone know why it was from top to bottom? Because man can't do it from top to bottom. Only God could do that. Only God could tear the veil from top to bottom. So when the centurion, he has our character, who stood opposite him, you standing opposite Jesus on the cross, saw that he cried out like this and breathed. It's been doing this to me all week. <laughs> At least you know it's impactful to me too. He breathed his last and the centurion said, truly this man was the son of God. What, what, what was in that cry? What was in the way Jesus died? What was observed by the centurion in the way Jesus ministered to him, even in his last final moments of life that caused this hardened Roman soldier to come to a saving knowledge and faith in who Jesus was? What was it, what was it about that cry of Christ that caused him to say, truly, this was God? What, what caused him to go from following after Jesus as an accuser to following Jesus as a believer? What, what sparked that change? Something in the cry. There was something in the cry. Well, let's firstly take a look at the background to this. Why, why, is, it, why is it important to understand the background, to, 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 to grasp how radical this was? Well, as we said just now, this, this, this Roman centurion knew Caesar to be son of God. That's what, what, that was what the people of Rome believed. Caesar was God. And so... You know, he had the ability, Caesar, to take away and give life, as it were. That's, that's what he, that's the, that's the authority that he had over people. And his ability to destroy life was most visible on the cross. That's where all the worst criminals went. If you had done a crime against the state, this is, this is what happened to you. You were subjected to the most horrific and shocking of deaths, the death on the cross. And the centurion knew that. He was hired by Caesar, you see. And so it would have to take something really radical for this hardened soldier to go from saying Caesar is God to this is the son of God. It's not just a light confession that. Once you to understand that this is a man that his entire life had believed otherwise. And you know, just like other, the, other, the other Roman citizens, he knew that, that, that this cross was, was Caesar's tool to implement his power. And so God picks that exact spot to reveal himself to the Roman centurion. You see, God picked the place where the greatest human in their minds, Caesar, was most feared to reveal himself most vulnerable and disarm that fear. God chose the place where Caesar was most feared to reveal himself most vulnerable and disarm that fear. God chose man's ability to kill as his ability to save. And like we celebrated last week Sunday, people expected this mighty warrior, Jesus, you know, to arrive with chariots and army to deliver his people. But God sent a suffering servant on a donkey to save them. Christ shows up in the most unexpected places to bring about his divine plan of redemption. And so something in that cry in the cross, something that the centurion saw, it must have had the power to turn man's ability to kill in God's ability to redeem. What was meant as a display of humiliation by human beings was meant as a place of restoration by God. And maybe that's what, that's what the centurion saw in that moment. You see, leading up to that moment, this soldier, he would have been with Jesus throughout the whole 
process, he would have been present when he was beaten in the courtyard. He would have been present during the scourging at the hands of his accusers. He would have been there at the trial with Pilate and the high priest and he would have been present watching over the twisting of the crown of thorns and forcing it on Jesus' head. He more than likely would have given instructions like he had done hundreds of times before for those nails to be driven into his hands and into his feet. And just like the centurion watching Jesus from an arm's length go through all of this, it amazes me how oftentimes we can be present in the presence of the king. Yet because of our familiarity, we, recognize, we never recognize him for who he truly is. We can be present in the presence of the king, but because of our familiarity to Christianity, to church, to faith, we can never recognize him for who he truly is. Friends, do you see him in your workplace? Do you recognize him in your family? Do you, can you identify him in every moment or are you too, all too familiar with the routine that you've overlooked the Redeemer? Or, or, or have you had that divine moment? Have you heard the cry of the cross that brought a radical change in you? You know, something else in those last few moments leading up to the death of Jesus that the centurion would have noticed is that he was unlike all the others because he wasn't spending his last moments like the others. He wasn't trying to accuse or get back at or revile those that were doing all of these evil things to him. He prayed for them. He prayed for them. Makes you think of Jesus' words right in Matthew chapter 5 his most powerful sermon ever recorded, Sermon on the Mount. He says these words, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the law, that's the old covenant. But I say to you, love your enemies. What, Lord? Who? Yeah, yeah. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Oh, but Jesus, you don't know what I've been through, man. Well, Okay, verse 45, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. Jesus lived out those words to the full. <laughs> That's why in the Christian faith, we can place our faith and our hope in him. He leads us by example. <laughs> and the centurion would have been in earshot of that famous prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I guess you could say that for the centurion, his familiarity with the death on the cross was being challenged with every passing minute that he stood there, eyes fixed on the man they claimed was guilty and deserving of this death, the worst death imaginable. You can almost imagine this revelation building up in the centurion's heart that this was, this was no ordinary man. <laughs> this was the son of God. But standing opposite him, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, something else happened to the centurion. This is maybe where it gets a little bit more personal, you see. This is where it gets a little bit more intimate and close to home, I suppose. The centurion would have also heard the conversation between Jesus and the criminals who were beside him. Remember that story? One on the left, one on the right. The one who threw insults at Jesus. The other one who threw his hope at Jesus. The one said, save yourself if you are the Messiah, save yourself, save us. The other said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you and I have that choice today, still. 
We can reject him or we can accept him. That choice is ours. You see, the centurion would have, would have heard Jesus' response, how he said to the one, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And perhaps, perhaps in that moment, where the anger and sin of humanity met the love and holiness of divinity, the centurion looked up at the cross and he saw himself there. Maybe he looked up at the cross and he saw the innocence in Jesus' eyes, the weight of love that he carried on his shoulders, the forgiveness in his hands, and he said, I should be hanging there. See, this is what happens when your familiarity gives way to finality. This is what happens when you get saved. You look at the cross with new eyes and you go, I should be hanging there. I deserve that punishment. I'm the one who's guilty. I'm the one <laughs> that should be receiving the just punishment for my wrongdoing. And then in a moment it hits you, I am hanging there. <laughs> my sin and my shame, my guilt is being punished there. That old me really is dead. The centurion saw Galatians 2.20, lived out before his very eyes in the person of Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. How can you say it's no longer I who live? You just died in the previous verse. It, yes, it really did happen. The proud me really died. The shameful me, the arrogant me, the greedy me, the lustful me, the unforgiving me, it really died. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, perhaps in that moment, in that cry, there was something in that last breath and that last cry and the moment surrounding this death that caused the most unexpected person to receive the unexpected gift of salvation in the most unlikely of places. Why does this matter? Why does this all matter? You see, just like the centurion, you can, you, can, you can track along with Jesus for some time. You really can. Perhaps even all your life. And yet never come to terms with who he is and what he's about. It's possible. You know, not realizing as you journey that all these shouts of accusation that the world is throwing at him, love is actually staring you at the eyes, in the eyes and has been waiting for you all along. And just like the centurion, you can follow after him but never follow him. This familiarity can breed in you such a contempt that causes you to miss out on a, what a life of freedom truly is about. You can recognize the Savior, but you can never receive him. And you see, that's what blindness does. That's what, that's what spiritual blindness is. That's what sin does. Sin keeps us in bondage. That's what it is. Scripture says that sin wants to enslave us. It wants to make it our master. And you see, there would not have been a need for the death of the Son of God had there not been this problem of sin in humanity that kept us from His presence. And the sin that prevented us from seeing Him and from living this life of, of freedom from the power of sin and death. There needed to be something in that cry 
that not only ended the one chapter that dealt with the problem of sin, but that started a brand new one at the same time. There needed to be something that not only obliterated the obstacle of our sin, but that caused a new way of living in God's presence to come alive. And just like the Roman centurion who stood face to face with the Son of God, we we recognise that that cry was not only a cry of anguish and pain for what he endured, it was also a cry of victory for another person, you. You. Jesus' life's end was your life's true beginning. And that final breath that he gave up was the first breath that you took. The carpenter's son who had held nails in his hands many, many times before and who'd helped his earthly dad drive them into wood many times before, turned his hands around and opened them up and said to his heavenly father, I'll let them have the nails. I'll be the object that they can drive into the wood in their place so that they would never go another single day without knowing how much you love them. The creator of the wood used for the cross subjected himself to death on the cross so that death itself would no longer have power over those who would receive him. Friends, this morning, don't get familiar with what is final because it is finished. It's finished.